was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came and upon him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze upon him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like that of an angel. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and that we have the privilege, Lord, of of holding it in our hands and hearing from your spirit in our hearts. And I pray that we would hear your voice, yield to you, God, that you would work in us, Lord, to strengthen us and to, to purify us, Lord, for your name's sake. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's great to be with you, the most spiritual people of Bernie Bible Church that are here this morning. Those of you that are still home in your pajamas, well, what can I say? Um, It's nice to be able to be back together on a limited basis. Crazy times that we're going through these last couple months. I can remember back in the early 70s when I spent most weekends toilet papering people's homes. And now you can't even hardly find toilet paper. I guess it's back in the stores now. But I think, man, how we used to just throw toilet paper around, literally. Roll people's houses, we called it. We stood in line for gasoline back in the early 70s. And now they're practically giving it away because it's gotten so cheap. So things sure change in a moment. You know, I started, um, when we start, first started with the book of Acts, I noted that it's a, it's a transition book. And there are things that are happening in this book that um, we can't take as normative for all Christians for all times. And even in the book of Acts, by the time we get to the end of the book, there's very little emphasis, for example, on either tongues or signs and wonders. And then when you get into the epistles, it's just not really there. And Paul is addressing tongues, but it appears that he's viewing tongues and describing tongues as something different than what was happening in Acts. So it's a transition book, but the constancy that runs through this book is Jesus Christ. And, and that has been so um, true for me, I'm, and I hope for you, as I'm reading through this book and preaching on it, I'm just going, man, this is so relevant for today. Even though it's a transition book, it is relevant in that, there is a sense in which God is reminding us all, I think, that, that we, the only constant thing in life, and I know that Mark Twain said was death and taxes, but the only constant thing in life really is Jesus Christ. And, and so life is always more um, transitory than what we maybe recognize. Uh, we are creatures of habit, and, and we, it's just so easy for us to fall into routine and we can think that life is more predictable 
than what it actually is. Um, I have a, a new friend that I, that I met last year, and he's um, uh, now a recent retired investment um, um, counselor, had his own investment firm, did very well, and wrote a book on investment that I, that I read recently. And, <laughs> and, um, and I called him up after all this has started to happen. And, um, and he, he knew that we were at a bubble and the stock market was probably going to have a major correction, um, but he didn't know it'd be like this. And, and then it started to rebound. And he goes, and I missed that too. And I'm going, this is a smart man who has spent 40 years of his life studying the markets, done better than most people would ever dream of doing. And he says, you just can't predict everything that's going to happen. And that's always the case. We, this, the only constant thing in life is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is our rock. And God works periodically in our lives to remind us of that, that the only thing that we can trust in truly is Jesus, and everything else that we're trusting in is a false God. It is an idol, and God hates competitors for devotion to him. And so in his mercy and his goodness to us, he's going to rattle the cage once in a while, shake the box once in a while for us to remember that the only thing we can truly trust in is the Lord himself. So that brings us, having said that, and we're working toward an introduction here with Stephen. We already were introduced to Stephen last time, where he is one of the seven men that's been chosen by the congregation to handle the distribution of food, collecting the money and distributing the money um, where it was best needed and as in, in a way that would be best honoring to God and meeting the needs of the people. And so they chose men, we're told in verse 3, that were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then we're told that Stephen not only was full of Spirit and wisdom, but in verse 5, he's full of, full of faith. And now in verse 8, full of grace and power. So this is a remarkable man. Five things we're told that characterize his life. So full of means that he's under the control of or he's being characterized by these things. He's characterized by the Spirit, by wisdom, by faith, by grace, and by power. Wow. He's an unusual man. So even at this time, when God is doing so much in the lives of people, Stephen stood out head and shoulders above the other people. Now, that gives me pause, because I want to think about that. Because this is such a remarkable man. And, and one, we know he's a new Christian. Because they're all new Christians, right? <laughs> they haven't had the Spirit of God indwelling them for very long. These are new Christians. And secondly, he is a, a, not only a young believer, he's probably a young man. Um, I doubt that Stephen is even 40 years old. Chances are he's not even 30 years old. He, he is a young man and a brand new Christian. And what the sense we're getting from, from the church as a whole at this time is that they are truly filled with the Spirit. Now remember, when you place your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. So every Christian is in that sense full of the Holy Spirit. You cannot get more of the Holy Spirit than what you got the moment you placed your faith in Christ. You got all that God is at the moment you placed your faith in Christ. But we know that you can be full of the Spirit 
and not be under the control of the spirit. Ananias and Sapphira were examples of that. They were under the control of Satan. So Peter says, why have you allowed Satan to fill your hearts? They were people who were saved, full of the spirit, but they were not under the control of the spirit of God. So a Christian can be full of the spirit and not be filled with the spirit. In other words, not under the control of the spirit. But these early, other early Christians, other than Ananias and Sapphira, seem to be really filled with the spirit not just full of the Spirit, but Stephen to a different measure. And not only filled with the Spirit, but wisdom and faith and grace and power. Now, I don't think that happened because he was asking God necessarily or pursuing wisdom, faith, grace, and power. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that spirit-filled Christians are seeking after experiences. I think they're just men and women, boys and girls even, who have made themselves available to God. They are empty vessels, and they are free for God to fill. And God chooses what measure to fill a Christian. All I can do is not quench him not grieve him, present myself to him. That's my responsibility. I cannot, in a sense, determine what God is going to do in response to me presenting myself to him. I can't determine how much God is going to use me or in what level, what measure he's going to fill me in terms of what we're seeing here with Stephen. Grace, power, faith, wisdom, And so when we come to the spiritual gifts, for example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say that God gives the gifts in various measures. Everybody has a a spiritual gift, but not everybody will have a gift to the same measure that someone else will have. Well, God has chosen with Stephen to fill him to an extraordinary measure. He's no more spiritual than any of the other Christians, even though I was just teasing about the spiritual ones are here today. Stephen is not more spiritual, but he is being used by the Spirit of God in a very powerful and unique way, even at this time when you'd walk into this church. I mean, we are, we're reading the book of Acts and we're going, these are amazing times. This is an amazing church. These people are truly filled with the Spirit of God. Amen. Stephen was extraordinary even among those people in this extraordinary time. But that was God's doing. And it it wasn't Stephen, I don't think, he might correct me, God might correct me when I meet Stephen someday, but I don't think this was Stephen just saying, I want to pursue being full or filled with wisdom or filled with power. But I think he was a man who was not quenching the Spirit, not grieving the spirit, who had simply presented himself to God, and this is what God was doing. So you can't be filled with the spirit under spirit's control and be full of self. I mean, inherent to the spirit of God doing this kind of thing in our lives is death to self, denial of self, and a presenting of ourselves to him. Romans 6 
Stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those belonging to him. And so there's a presentation of self to God, and then God determines what this feeling is going to look like. It is a reliance upon the Spirit. It is no confidence in self. It is humility, a proper assessment of self and belief in God. It is fearing God. This man undoubtedly knew his Bible. He had been trained in the synagogue, had grown up um, worshiping God. He was a man undoubtedly of integrity and character even before this happened, where the Spirit was filling him in this way. But the distinctive of his life, more than anything else, was not even the being filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom and faith and, and, and power and grace, but it's simply Jesus. This is a man who's believing in Jesus, walking with him, and this is what God is doing in his life. I believe that the whole reason Stephen's here is that he is one more clear example that Jesus is risen from the dead. The only explanation for Stephen's life is Christ, and that he's trusting in Christ. The explanation for the uniqueness of his life and what we're seeing here with the filling of the spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, and power is not Stephen. It's that Jesus lives, and his very life can only be explained by the fact that Christ is risen from the dead. Because if Christ is not risen from the dead, then Jesus couldn't send the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. But it's because these people are indwelt, even, these people are filled because they are indwelled. They are indwelled because Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit. So what we're seeing in the life of, of Stephen here is, is that he is a living demonstration of the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's what makes his life so powerful. A humble man, available to the Lord. This is what God is doing in him. There are, there, does that mean that God can do this in us? Absolutely. Does this mean that our lives are going to look exactly like his? No. Philip is, is a, another remarkable man. He's coming up in the next chapter. Credible guy. But only Stephen... Is, is said to have been filled in these five ways. God can do that in us, but that's not the goal. The goal is that Christ, through his in, indwelling presence, be seen in our lives. The goal is Jesus. And if, and if this is how Jesus wants to make himself known, then praise God. But we don't compare ourselves with each other. Stephen wasn't trying to be better than all the other spirit-filled Christians. He wasn't trying to be more spiritual than all the other spirit-filled Christians. He was just a man available to God, and this is what God was doing. And the purpose was not to exalt Stephen, but so that people would see Jesus is alive. And the only explanation for this man is the fact that Christ lives. All you at home can say, Amen. Now, Let's look at the text here and work through it a little bit. So in verse 8, he was full of grace and of power and was performing great 
wonders and signs among the people. For whatever reason, God is allowing Stephen to perform miracles. So it's not just the apostles that were performing miracles. In some instances in this early church, others were as well. But not everybody. Again, if everybody was performing miracles, we'd be told that. But God is, was he even using all seven to do this. No, it was just Stephen at this point. Of the seven that they've just been selected, only Stephen is performing miracles. He didn't wake up one day and say, well, I think I'll perform a miracle today. He was just going about his business, probably praying for people as there was opportunity to, and God was using him to do this kind of thing. Then in verse 9, he meets some opposition. Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freed men, there were hundreds of synagogues in Israel, even in Jerusalem. And, and people, with, as we have today, I mean, we can all be Christians. I'm not saying everybody goes to church is a Christian, but, but, but assuming everybody that ever went to church was a Christian, we still naturally gravitate to places where we feel most comfortable. And, and that's, that's human nature. Shouldn't be, but that's human nature. And so these synagogues were, were often filled with people who had similar backgrounds. And so this synagogue of the freed men would have been a Hellenistic synagogue. People who maybe grew up outside of Israel. They were Greek-speaking, Jewish people, but they were not the, the, um, the Judaic Hebrew people. These were the Hellenist people. They may have been slaves at one time. Seems like that's probably was the case. And they've been released from their slavery and they had slavery in common. So they've come together and they formed their own synagogue of former slave people who are now worshiping together in the synagogue. And Stephen may have already known these people. He may have attended the same synagogue and there's been such a dramatic change in him that they're coming against him now. What's going on? And, and they're giving him grief. And that shouldn't surprise us. We saw that's what happened with David after the Spirit of God came upon him. And, his, and his, one of his brothers is saying, why have you come to the battlefield? You just came, you've left those sheep alone, and you just came here to see what's going on. And, and so, so Stephen's hitting this wall of opposition, and it's spirit versus flesh. That's what's going on here. He's a spirit-filled man, and these other people who don't even know Christ, and they're, and they're butting heads with Stephen, and they may not, may not even recognize what the problem is, but it's a spiritual problem. And they're reacting to, what, to the life that they see in Stephen. And so they argued with Stephen, verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they can't do that. They can't defeat him by argument. And so they figure they're just going to lie about him and slander him. So verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Not true. Flat out lies. Shouldn't be surprising when we read about this thing all the time that still takes place in the political arena today where good people are slandered and misrepresented and brought down for no reason other than they're good. And that's what's happening here to Stephen. Now, to be sure, Stephen had some opinion about Moses. And he had a pretty strong opinion about the temple. And it's undoubtedly that as he was preaching, he spoke to these Jewish people about the proper place of Moses and the temple and even the land. 
Because as we're going to get into chapter 7, those are the three things that he's going to step through. He's going to talk about the, the real significance of the land for God, the land of Israel. The real significance of the law of Moses and the real significance of the temple. He doesn't poo-poo any of those three things, but he puts them in their proper place because the Jews have elevated them way too high. So what's happening here is is God's going to use Stephen to expose the idolatrous hearts of the Jewish establishment. Because as this change is taking place here, this is where, again, I see so much relevancy for what we're going through right now as a people. We don't like this change. I hate it. I really don't like it. And, and I, I, I would, I just, it's, it's, I just, I hate it. And it's, I, you know, I just wish it were over and, it, and we were back to normal. But there is no normal other than Jesus for the Christian. Everything else is a facade. And if I can't find peace and joy and contentment in the upheaval of what's going on in society, then I have a God other than Jesus. See, this is exposing the idolatry of our hearts. And things are changing dramatically here in Israel. There are now, as like I said last Sunday, I think it was, an estimated 25,000 people who are new believers in Jerusalem. This is the, the roof is blown off Judaism. And these people are coming together on Sunday, not just Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, and they are worshiping somebody that, they, that the Jews just put to death. And they're, they're, they don't know, the Jews don't know what to do with this. And, there's, and, and even these new Christians, things are changing so quickly. Their orientation is no longer the synagogue. They're meeting in the temple, but the temple's not their orientation. It just happens to be a convenient place to see everybody. But they could care less about the temple. Things are changing radically for these people. They have quick, ready um, uh, acknowledgement of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, that's, that's a doctrine's there, but you don't even see it being developed. And they're, and they're just like the Jewish people don't begin to understand from their Old Testaments that our one God is three persons, but these new Christians are going, we get it. This is why it's Elohim, plural, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. This is why it's let us make God in our own image and not I will make man in my own image. Let us make man in our own image. And so these, the Jewish establishment is rattled to its core. And Stephen is calm and he says, this isn't an attack on you guys. But your hearts, he's going to say in chapter 7, are no different than your father's. They're idolatrous. You're putting too much emphasis on the land. You're putting too much emphasis on the law of Moses. You're putting too much emphasis on, um, on the temple. God never intended for these things to be the focus, the definition the foundation for your life. Jesus is. And these constancies, the temple, the land, the law, God never meant for them to be constant. The only constant in life is to be God himself, not his blessings. And are they blessed to be in the land? Absolutely. Are they blessed to have the law of Moses? Absolutely. Are they blessed to have that temple? Absolutely. 
But God never wanted the blessing to take the place of himself. And this early church and all that's going on is causing these people to become, become unnerved because everything feels threatening now. Nothing is as it was, and they want it to go back to how it was. And Stephen, in his preaching, is undoubtedly saying, it'll never be what it was. When I hear people say on TV, it'll ne- we will never go back to what we were. I don't like hearing that. But that's, in essence, what Stephen was saying. It will never be what it was from this point on. And for us as Christians, we should go, you know, nations come and go. Economies come and go. We get it. And I don't like it. I like the United States. And I like Texas. And I'm kind of proud to be an American, and, but Texan first. But none of that matters. And because nations change. And there is nothing, and I believe that, that, that the United States is a gift from God. I don't believe it's the most spiritual country on earth, but I believe it may have had the most spiritual beginning. I mean, this is a unique country. When we get into the history and look at our founding fathers and see their faith in Jesus Christ and how open they were about that faith and committed to that faith, it's an amazing beginning that we had. I love this country. And we have been blessed. I believe the whole world has been more blessed than they have been hurt by this country that God has raised up. But that doesn't mean he's going to keep it. Any more than the Jewish people could count on their temple staying around. Or even being able to stay in their land. So this is, there's a lot of relevancy here. For us as well. And I, I know that God is using these times to expose because the idolatrous nature of our hearts, because we are simply inclined to stability. And we look for stability outside of Jesus. It is human nature. But human nature is idolatrous. That's the plain truth here. Our constancy, our stability, our rock is not the economy. It is not the United States of America. It is not good health. It is not a stable civil society. Christ. And it is human nature to be looking for stability and making things stable, protecting ourselves, insulating ourselves. That's why we put locks on the doors and we, you know, and we take the keys out of the car. Because we, are, we naturally gravitate toward making things as safe and protected as possible. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But if my trust is in my means to make life work, my trust is in me. And you can't be a spirit-filled man and be trusting in your own efforts. What made Stephen unique was no explanation in himself. This is a man who is trusting in Jesus and God is doing a unique work in his life because his trust is not in the temples, not in the land, it's not in the law, but it's in Christ. So they induce these men to lie about him. They charge him with blasphemy just like they did with Jesus. Verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him. The sense is that they did this suddenly by surprise. 
He was in the midst of whatever he was doing, and they rushed in and grabbed him. And they dragged him away, and they brought him before the council, the same council that crucified Christ. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. There's an element of truth, but there's a big lie here as well. He, had, he was not against the temple, and he was not against the law. But Stephen simply understood their proper place. And the Jewish establishment was making these things everything. And Stephen understood that the temple and the law and the land, all of it, they were simply gifts from God to point people to Jesus. They're not the end in themselves. And then they said, we heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place. Jesus never said that. And by the way, in the chapter that's coming up, it's the longest chapter in Acts. If Stephen was trying to defend himself in chapter 7, all he would have had to say was, Jesus never said that and I didn't either. And go home. But he wasn't trying to defend himself. He wasn't trying to win his own acquittal. He was using this, these false trumped-up charges as an opportunity to tell the truth about what God was doing at this time. So he uses an opportunity to preach and not as an opportunity to get himself acquitted from these charges. Remarkable. Even that, you see a spirit-filled man because he goes, it's not about me. They're lying about me. They're, they're, they're slandering me. They're, they're, and I know they want to murder me. He, and I've done nothing wrong. And he doesn't panic and say, I need to defend myself. There's no self-defense here. He simply uses it as an opportunity to correct these people, to speak the truth about what God is doing in their times. We have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down. Jesus didn't say he's going to alter the customs. He didn't say anything about the customs. What he said was is that he would fulfill the law. Do not think that I came to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, he's going to say. The customs of Moses, though, they're really incidental. Incidental, so many of these things. Not all of them, but some of them are just very incidental. And in the big grand scheme of things, not important. But Jesus never said he was going to abolish the law. And Jesus never said that the temple would be torn down, that he himself would tear down the temple. He said it would be torn down. Didn't say he was going to do it. And fixing their gaze upon him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, every commentary that I read believes that he was shining, that, that when they looked at him, they saw what you would have seen when you looked at Moses when he came down off Mount Sinai. And so, and so there, and every one of them, I was surprised. You don't see consistency normally you know, between a lot of commentaries. But, but as I recall, every one that I read said Stephen's face was glowing and that this was probably the Shekinah glory in the sense that it was with with um, Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai. And the reason that's significant is because they're accusing Stephen of being against Moses. And they're looking at one who looks like Moses. And, and, he goes, and they should have, it shouldn't have been lost on them 
This guy has the face of an angel. And the 71 men that he's standing before would have looked like demons. Just the anger and the rage and the darkness. And they're seeing a guy that's just light standing before them. And they hated the light. And as we know, when we get to the end of chapter 7, they're going to kill him. So Stephen becomes the first martyr in the New Testament. Israel, Wearsby pointed out, sinned against God the Father when they permitted the death of John the Baptist. And he takes that from a parable that Jesus gave in Matthew 21, where Jesus says that the, that the, that the Father sent various servants, and they kept killing all the servants until finally the Father sent his own son, and they killed the son as well. And so Wearsby says when, when, the, when Israel... Um, did not raise an objection to Herod killing John the Baptist. They were sinning against the father who sent John the Baptist. I think that's probably valid. And then he pointed out when Israel, Israel sinned against the Son of God when they asked for Jesus to be crucified and for Barabbas to be released. And now when they kill Stephen, when they stone him to death... They are sinning against the Spirit who is bearing witness through him. Now, that's an interesting way of looking at things that Wearsby says. So now, now Israel is guilty of blaspheming God, the Father, blaspheming Jesus, the Son. And now this might be the point where they are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Some would say that they had already blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Others would say, no, they didn't. They got right up to that cliff edge, and Jesus didn't want them to step over it, so he started speaking to Israel in parables in Matthew chapter 12, where he says, you're about to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and Jesus twists, changed his teaching and started teaching in parables. If that's true, then this would be the place. If Israel ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit, this is the time. And it's shortly after this, in 70 A.D., that Jerusalem will be destroyed. They've gone as far as they can go. And now the result will be the destruction of all the things that they've held precious. They won't have the temple. They won't have their land. The things that they are most being defined by, they're going to lose it because of how they are rejecting God and sinning against him. We didn't have a missionary moment, and we started at a quarter till, so we've already gone a long place. And I, I, I was hoping to get through all of chapter 7 this morning. That's probably a bit ambitious, so nobody else is going to show up next week. Uh, <laughs> or he will be here in your pajamas if I do. But I, I, I won't do that, but I will just make this um, observation. Um, Again, coming back to just a spirit-filled man, how even among spirit-filled people, how unique Stephen was. He did nothing wrong, and he was murdered by religious people who were proud of their own morality, and they murdered him. I 
decided, I just wonder how many people, how many Christians have been martyred for their faith. And I don't know how many have been martyred, nobody would know, since the church began in Acts chapter 2. But one um, thing that I read said that by 325 A.D., so this is now getting to the end of the Roman Empire, and Constantine um, is going to make Christianity um, the, the national religion of Rome. And the persecution basically stopped at that point. But by 325 A.D., there were an estimated 7 million Christians within the Roman Empire. Two million had been put to death up to that time. So in the first 300 years of the church's history, two million Christians had been put to death. And that's a big number. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity of Gordon Cornwell Theological Seminary actually studies every year how many Christians are being martyred for their faith. And the Center for the Study of Global Christianity says that every year for the last 10 years, there have been, they estimate, 100,000 Christians killed around the world. That's a million Christians every 10 years. It was 2 million Christians for the first 300 years. So this is the time of probably greatest Christian persecution that the world has ever seen. And we can try to fit in and be accepted. Again, if I'm taking my confidence and my peace and my security from the world, um, good luck with that. But if I'm different from the world and I speak truth to the world, as Stephen's doing, to the religious powers even, and saying, you know, as much as I love meeting in this building, we don't have to have a building. So that's what Stephen was saying. As much as I love the temple and thank God for the blessing of the temple, we don't need this temple. We don't need it. I mean, and you start speaking truth. You know, as much as we thank God for stable economies and, 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 and justice systems that actually give you justice and these things that are blessings from God. We don't need these things. We need Jesus. And we cannot let the gift become our confidence. Or we become idol worshipers. And God hates it. And so there are lots of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't have any trouble thinking many of them are every bit as spirit-filled as Stephen. And they're losing their lives. 100,000 a year, a million every 10 years. And I would trust it's because they do not love their own lives and they do not love this world. But they are walking with Jesus and they count it a privilege to be even martyred for the name of Jesus. We are living in great times. We may not like them, but God's doing, I know, because he's a great God, he's in control. God's doing a great work. And one of those things that he is constantly after with his people is purifying our hearts, where our only trust and confidence is in him. I'll close this in prayer.
God, I do thank you for your life within us. I thank you, God, that we can live spirit-filled lives to your glory that testify to the risen Jesus Christ. And that life is not about us, and I thank you that we do not have to defend ourselves. But that with every opportunity that we have, I pray that we would, would speak truth with wisdom and power and grace, as Stephen did, under the control of your spirit, for your glory, God. And we know the outcome may not be what we would like it to be. It may even result in our death. And God, we would all just love for things to go back as they were. I'm not sure that you would love that, especially if that means complacency and idolatry. And so I thank you that you're shaking us, purifying us, and also, God, that whether we are allowed to live and prosper or our lives are cut short, the promise is of your goodness in your faithfulness, and that we can trust in Jesus and never be disappointed. In Christ's name, amen.